You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Southern Peanut Growers, committed to making sustainable more attainable for chefs and cooking enthusiasts worldwide. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila. Handcrafted, expert approved, with over 20 international blind tasting awards. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York, 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today we're talking about one of my very favorite topics, the meatpacking industry. Our guest is Chloe Sorvino. She leads the coverage of food and agriculture at Forbes. Her book, Raw Deal, Hidden Corruption, Corporate Greed, and the Fight for the Future of Meat will be published in December 2022 by Simon & Schuster's Atria Books. Congratulations, Chloe. You'll be back to talk about it in December. Uh, But in the meantime, today... We are going to discuss the findings of the Select Committee investigation of the meatpacking industry during the pandemic. Now, listeners may or may not have been paying attention to this. It didn't get a huge amount of play in the press, did it? Um, but not you enough. covered right, not nowhere near enough, in my opinion. But you covered those hearings. So, what was your impression? Who were the players? Who were the industry people? Who was on the committee? Who was there from USDA? Um, give us sort of the the overall picture of what happened. Yeah, so there's been a lot of different hearings and committee reports around what's been happening in the meatpacking industry. And obviously, you know, there's been a lot of questions around uncompetitive markets and what happened in the pandemic, you know, for a lot of a lot of a lot of time. Um, There have been several bigger hearings more recently, even one where the actual CEOs of the top meatpacking companies were called in to testify, which rarely, rarely happens. Mm. Um, but this report that came out last month is a massive, massive undertaking. It's the results of more than 151,000 pages of documents collected from this pretty intense investigation from, again, the select subcommittee, bipartisan, lots of different folks on there. And, you know, they've been tasked with doing major research and major, majorly important work. They've conducted over yeah. a dozen interviews with meatpacking workers, union representatives, lots of different CDC, OSHA, USDA officials, local state health authorities. And, you know, at the end of the day, this report is landmark and it is deeply concerning. What it reveals is that as the spread of coronavirus was ripping through a lot of the biggest plants in this country and making meat production slow down as a result. And a lot of workers were scared to go in and didn't want to risk their lives to produce meat. Mm -hmm. That a lot of these meatpacking companies were engaging in extremely serious and direct communications with government officials on pretty much every level of this trying to wield their power and shield themselves from legal liability for any resulting worker illnesses or deaths. And in general, just continuing to push their workers to work in these knowingly extremely unsafe conditions. 
Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, uh, for people who haven't been following this, and I can't remember now whether I discussed this with you later on, but um, but these were uh, those pandemic years, 2020, 2021, uh, were some of the most profitable years uh, for a lot of these big meat packers. They uh, exported huge amounts of meat. So it wasn't really a question of whether or not we were going to have the shortages that they advertised in full page ads and so forth. But I think we discussed that later on. So let's let's talk. Let's start by talking about someone named Mindy Brashears. Is am I saying that right? Brashears. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So she was a big, she turned out to be a big deal. She's a USDA, you know, factotum. Um, tell us about the role that she played in facilitating the industry when it came to fighting regulations on worker safety. And I want you to describe in particular the, quote, lack of a paper trail and other failures to document communications between the White House and the USDA and meatpackers. Yeah, so I want to be clear that this coordination and this massive influence campaign that meatpackers were pushing out as the pandemic was having its its, its first initial worst weeks, mm-hmm. um, you know that they were lobbying everyone from local, state health organizations to you know Vice President Pence and you know directly, right. but a lot of what actually was, you know, where the rubber met the road ended up being with this one undersecretary for food safety, Mindy Brashears, who essentially was tasked as the soldier from the Trump administration to commandeer what was happening, take control of it, and just completely bring it out of the normal channels. She did a lot of back channeling with a lot of these different um, companies, as well as a different lobbyists, which, again, this report has crazy, crazy emails and reports and different, even, you know, there's even handwriting on reports and, and edits that were made by some of these companies that wow. um, this report has shown and, 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 and these uh, Congress folk have been reviewing as part of this um, major investigation. Um, but it really all comes back to Mindy Brashers because she was the one who really is a political appointee that from Trump that had to go out and corral the power and- wow make sure that, you know, do everything in her power really to try to not force the shutdown of a plant. And it became extremely closed off. Again, there was a lot of back channeling. She was using a lot of her personal cell phone, a lot of her personal email account, which um, (laughs) the journalist may be listening or, you know, as a journalist, I will be very clear to say that means that none of those documents were FOIAable, which is the Freedom of Information Act, which means that right. they weren't actually ever public. But as a uh, appointee and a public representative, you really need to make sure all those types of communications are uh, public and uh, able to be requested. Right. Um, so they were doing this, you know, at an extremely high level. And some of the quotes from these um the the emails that she was sending that were um, able to be um, obtained by this report are startling. I mean, she was really asking plants, local health departments to leave absolutely no paper trail. Um, And the meetings they were having were absolutely no paper trail. So that's really horrific and really startling to hear, uh, you know, the, the, the a push government for lack official, of transparency. Right. A government official insisting on a lack of transparency. Yes. And at such a crazy time, right? These were hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of plant workers at this point were already going to the hospitals. We see emails in this report about, you know, doctors at hospitals 
emailing the meatpacking companies and saying, these are all your either family members or people directly from your plants. They knew this. There's proof that they understood how dangerous it truly was. And then we have Mindy Brashers coming in and begging people to, quote, leave no paper trail. Wow. So one of the things um, which you just alluded to um, that the subcommittee found was that career USDA staff were being sidelined from, quote, key decision making, that they were excluded from discussions, while instead political appointees were working with the companies and the executive branch directly. Describe what that looked like. What happened there? It really, I mean, I can't uh, oversell how um, specific some of these things were. I mean, the CEO of Smithfield even at one point was, again, personally sending PDFs of his personal handwritten notes on some of these, um, you know, uh, regulations and rules and and proposals that they were trying to hope that the government would approve, Um, which honestly as is sidelining sidelining staff as much as possible, right? When a CEO is yeah. actually even emailing, you know, the staff of Mike Pence, uh, that's that's really Absolutely. saying something. But this happened on lots of lots of different levels, and it really had its impact. So what they were what they were what they were saying to one another is, uh, you know, essentially the meatpacking co- business industry was writing the regulations as the pandemic was soaring through their packing plants. Right. They were they were instructing the administration on what kinds of regulations they were willing to accept, essentially, right. on on worker safety and how to proceed uh, as the pandemic unfolded. And and meanwhile, as Leah Douglas from at that time, Fern News, now at, at uh, Reuters, reported every week, um, the, the these meatpacking uh, plants were actually responsible for enormous community spread, not just enormous. within the packing the packing plant itself, but the kids are bringing it into the schools, the workers are bringing it into growth stores, you know, all over their towns. I mean, really shocking uh, that, you know, this had a much wider implication, in fact, than just uh, what was happening to the workers themselves. So now where was the Department of Labor in all of this? Like what, what role did they play? What policies did they enact on behalf of the administration? I mean, for instance, there was um, people didn't, uh, no unemployment benefits would be given if a worker quit out of fear, stuff like that. And then there was also uh, you know, the, speaking again about the, the the safety measures that the the industry lobbied for would indemnify them from lawsuits by forcing workers to work despite the known dangers. Can you talk a little bit about those policies that they they ended up insisting on? I think that's a huge, huge, huge one. Um, you know, the Department of Labor had a clear role to play here. Yeah, and you know, as a journalist, I'm not going to say whether or not you know, uh, I, I can't speak to, you know, if I personally think they should do, have done more or not, but, you know, sure. these meatpacking companies were successfully lobbying and, and successfully getting policies where, you know, as you said, how the industry preferred worker benefit policies to rule out. And they were able to use this intimidation. I think it's important to call this intimidation. They were able to make workers believe that they were not being able to get any unemployment benefits for not showing up again in, in a very dangerous situation. Um, and when OSHA, which is within the department of labor, when OSHA eventually did levy fines for very few of the instances, they were tens of thousands of dollars, pretty much a slap on the wrist. Yeah. Essentially nothing else than that. And that's startling. Now there have been other private lawsuits too from different families and such, but you know, 
there was a very clear role for the Department of Labor and OSHA to play here. But more often than not, those OSHA um, plant inspectors were not going into plants. They were getting sidelined. And uh, above them, these overall policies were happening, which took off the liability for meat packers that gave insurance, you know, it, it made it easier for them to uh, not be able to have insurance claims around any deaths. Mm-hmm. And really just, again, to completely, you know, take the legal liability from any resulting worker illness or death off of the meat packer, which is pretty wild to think about when you realize that these plants, though, were becoming hotbeds of pandemic outbreaks. So almost so much sort of more than almost any other sector. It yeah. was one of the most worst sectors. And again, you mentioned Leah Douglas. She has done such amazing work on this and is now at Reuters and doing a, continue to do amazing work. And, you know, her piecemeal reporting over the years, put, over the year, painted an amazing picture of it. But even more recent uh, data from the government has shown that, you know, the workers and the, the spread were so much more than we even ever thought. Unbelievable. I mean, the idea that uh, that <laughs> that they should be indemnified uh, from lawsuits for and and still and allowed to force workers to work uh, in spite of the known dangers is is it's almost enough to you know really make your stomach turn. Um, I think uh, there's one more thing, and then we have to take a little short break. But uh, there, there was a headline that really caught my eye in the reports, and, and I'm going to quote now. The meatpacking industry, this is a quote, meatpacking industry complained about, quote, pesky state and local health departments that sought to impose science-backed coronavirus precautions in meatpacking meat plants and tried to obscure worker death counts from these authorities. This was in the report itself. So there appears to have been a very significant effort to suppress inspections and mm-hmm. to ignore regulations from the local state and health departments, such as what was described with Foster Farms and the Merced County Department of Public Health out in California. I want you to talk for a second about what happened there. Yeah, I think that quote was one of the headlines for me. Right? Well, oh, oh my, my God. Imagine? Okay, so here's the context of that. Can I give you a little more of the context? Yes. So it was on May 22nd, 2020. Again, now by this point, there are thousands of workers who are sick, many that have died, mm-hmm. um, dozens. And an executive at Coke Foods was uh, told a meatpacking industry lobbyist, essentially, that a temperature screening was all that they should be doing. Mm-hmm. Now, again, the CDC at this point was recommending six feet of space in between workers, dividers, masks, lots more than just a temperature screening. Um, but that lobbyist agreed, and he said... <laughs> The in now infamous quote, now to get rid of those pesky health departments. I mean, I think it says it all. These meatpacking companies seem to really wish health departments didn't exist, and especially at this time of pandemic. Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, you know, the inconvenience, uh, the loss of workers. I mean, the, the fact is, is that the meatpacking industry has treated workers like widgets for, you know, decades. I mean, ever since I like to bring everything back to Reagan and Thatcher. But that mm-hmm. is essentially when the, you know, when all the regulations, basically the gloves came off, industry was suddenly allowed to regulate itself. 
uh, and uh, unions were busted. So the meatpacking industry, which at one time had been a solid middle-class uh, endeavor mm -hmm. where a guy could own a house and raise a family and all that on that salary, that all went away. And so the unions uh, being busted, then they were the meatpacking industry is able to bring in uh, undocumented workers who, who are primarily the backbone of that workforce. And, though, and so even though we're talking about the intimidation factor of not giving unemployment benefits or refusing to allow people to have sick days, um, this goes back decades at this point. There's nothing new about uh, the way they've been treating these workers through the pandemic and before the pandemic, and no doubt uh, as they continue to do um, nowadays. So um, let's take a real short break right now for a sponsor drop. We'll be right back with Chloe Sorvino from Forbes magazine talking about the House Select Committee um, that investigated the meatpacking issues uh, surrounding the pandemic. Please stay tuned. This episode is proudly supported by Southern Peanut Growers, who are spreading the word about peanut sustainability. As the planet's resources are strained to meet the nutritional needs of its populations, many responsible chefs are doing their part by sourcing local and sustainably raised food. Many are surprised to learn that peanuts are one of the most sustainable plant-based proteins available. Southern Peanut Growers created the campaign Making Sustainable More Attainable in partnership with award-winning chef Stephen Satterfield. Together, they're bringing the sustainability message to chefs nationwide, whether it's conserving water, minimizing fertilizers, or achieving zero waste, peanuts are a logical choice for your next menu. Southern peanut growers represent farmers across Georgia, Florida, Mississippi, and Alabama. For more information, visit www.peanutbutterlovers.com. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods at a family-owned and operated distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. 818 is created from fully matured blue agave from the Los Altos and Valles regions of tequila. It is then slow-cooked for over 30 hours, extracted using traditional Tahona wheels, distilled twice in copper pot stills, and aged in American and French oak barrels. This process creates the best-tasting, highest-quality tequila possible. Their tequilas have received over 20 blind tasting awards. They strive for excellence in every sip. 818's Blanco is sweet and smooth with undertones of tropical and citrus fruits. Their Reposado is soft and balanced with notes of caramel and vanilla. Their Añejo is elegant and velvety with crisp herbal notes and a warm vanilla finish. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their tequila and find it near you. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York, 40% alcohol by volume. Drink responsibly. Okay, so you mentioned the CDC uh, in, your, in our last question when we were talking about uh, the pesky regulations. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, I wanted you to uh, sort of describe a little bit the role of the CDC and specifically the director, uh, Robert Redfield, in allowing, uh, how did it happen that industry was allowed to dictate policy? Where was the role of the CDC in this? Why did they not have more uh, power, shall we say? I guess there's no other way of putting it. And more, you know, more of a role, an activist role in protecting community spread. Yeah, I think that's the... <laughs> That's a big one. I really do. I mean, you know, where were they? I mean, they have put out this original guidance, right? Yeah. That 
workers, all workers in, in, in essential industries needed to have six feet of space. There was this really um, fascinating um, and heartbreaking lawsuit that uh, happened at the time, um, really kind of challenging the CDC guidance and trying to get meatpackers to actually compel them to actually agree to what the CDC put out. But that pretty much failed miserably. The judge essentially said, like, defer to the meatpackers. And the CDC was content. And Robert, the director, you know, former director Robert Redfield was completely, you know, shut out. I mean, there was a few moments of that I can kind of go into here. But I think the takeaway really is that they were overlooked and not empowered to be able to actually enforce what they needed to enforce, which what their science was saying that needed to be enforced. Right. And that is just, you know. Well, they were, they were not allowed to inspect plants. I mean, I'm, I'm curious, like, I know that a lot of the plants, you know, after the first year, once these guidances came out and, you know, the six feet of distancing and they're supposed to be these plate glass or plastic separators between the workers and all that kind of stuff, which by the way, and the, and the lack of PPE, which eventually was rectified as I understood it. But, um, you know, these were sort of too little too late. And indeed, in many cases, appeared to really just be window dressing, right? I mean, the- Window dressing. And also, you know, uh, Director Redfield was in specifically inserting qualifiers into some of this language. Oh, right. Because he had been persuaded by industry concerns himself. So the words, if feasible, showed up a lot. Um, and- it's some of that language that I think a lot of folks believe is why a lot of the plants were actually not able to be shut down for good or, you know, the six feet could, would, couldn't be, you know, compelled um, legally because of that. Oh, um, really? Essentially, yeah, essentially the, the language that was edited, and this is in the report as well, you know, the language that was edited made it so that the CDC was taking out its own, like, mandatoriness from these recommendations. Mm-hmm. It was giving an out, a loophole. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yes, because if it's if feasible, if the company says, well, I'm afraid that's really not feasible, well, then I guess we just don't have to do that, do we? Right. I mean, that, that seemed to be how it worked. And even the workers reported, uh, you know, these barriers that were supposed to come up, you know, barely came up past their shoulders, which meant that they were essentially useless. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure what the, I don't know what the mindset would be. What, what is the logic behind that in terms of the industry? Is that cutting costs? So that if an inspector comes in, you see that there's the barriers, they don't maybe notice that they don't actually <laughs> cause any separation between the workers. I mean, I don't know. Like, it's just, the whole thing is so surreal. Um, it is. And I do think I will also point out that the highest number of infection rates that the CDC report later found were in those facilities that didn't have the six feet of space in between each workers. It was when there was less it was less than that, especially particularly in that big um, CU Falls Smithfield facility, which is where that lawsuit I was referencing earlier mm-hmm. was about. It was like the test case. Um, and some advocacy groups were trying to um, compel that plant to change from a Jane Doe that was coming forward. Um, and that is a plant where it, it had some of the worst threat and some of the highest rates. Right, right. So um, let's let's talk for a minute about um, the advertiser, the public relations campaign that was launched by Smithfield and Tyson um, 
you know, who uh, Tyson, in, as a case in point, and I mentioned this earlier, uh, took out a full page ad in, you know, newspapers across the United States saying we are facing an impending, you know, disastrous meat shortage. And that was really what set the ball rolling in terms of the Trump administration then did they actually invoke the Defense Protection Act? I think they did, but I'm not positive. You probably do know yes, that. they did, um, and that's what gave them the lack of liability moving right. forward. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll say we can step, take a step back because please, they did go to extraordinary lengths to suggest a meat shortage would be coming for all of us. And I will say that I was one of the few reporters who, at the time, was writing a lot about how that was just simply so far from the truth and very far from reality, specifically mm -hmm. because the USDA reports were showing that, you know, inventory and frozen, uh, you know, warehouses and, and freezers essentially across this nation were at an all time high for a lot of the different types of meat. Um, while, you know, fresh meat was sometimes hard to find because those backups that were happening in plants were making some of that fresh product not happening as quickly. There was still a lot of meat out there, let alone we can take a step back even further and talk about how meat consumption has been rising so much over the past several years to a point where if we all, you know, I think there's just access issues and different distribution issues, but on the whole, meat consumption really has to decrease in terms of climate and a lot of other, um, uh, you know, major uh, challenges that we face in this food right. system faces. And so, you know, these CEOs are taking out these big front, fancy front page ads, uh, full page ads in, in the New York Times and, and talking a lot on TV and in, in some kind of mainstream media about how they were worried that, that the food system was breakdown. And let me tell you that in this country, that's pretty much the least thing <laughs> <laughs> like anyone right? ever wants like people get really <laughs> mad when there's no meat like it just it just is like meatless meatless monies it's it causes such fights but specifically around me i mean you can even look historically it was an election year right 2020 was an election year and no president when there's been high meat prices has pretty much ever won re-election again um, right and there's been a lot of pretty big moments politically um particularly with different meat shortages being threatened over even this country's history um, and that's completely, you know, changed the course of some of our political history. And a big one is in 1947, um, when there was like the, some of the highest price at the time and because of the World War II and, all, and like Russians and a lot of other things. But sure. uh, the entire Congress pretty much changed out because it was a, such a massive deal that meat, meat and there were so many protests happening about meat prices and meat shortages. And so, you know, they really were able to like pick up on those fears and exploit mm -hmm. them in a way that combined with that media blitz yeah. super impactful for, for like so many people you know right. like all you really needed for these meatpackers was to see you know wendy's is not selling fresh hamburgers right now because they can't get any enough fresh beef um and people freaked out but yeah. was that actually the case no i mean the headline that i wrote on april 11th was fears of a meat shortage are rising but the threat is far less likely mm -hmm. and you know, I continue to beat that drum. Several others did as well. Um, but it was just never rooted in reality. At the same time, though, these CEOs were fear-mongering. And in fact, uh, Smithfield and JPS uh, re reported, exported record volume of meat. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about, you know, how much money they made. 
Oh yeah, yeah. They they actually all did. Um, I've got even more recent numbers in my book. Fantastic um, about this, and you know, my book spans the the history of a, a lot of this, but it uses the mm-hmm. pandemic as a catalyzing moment. And these exports are were a big one for me because it's another <laughs> clear reality of why there was never a shortage in the first place. They were exporting more than ever before. They may not have been able to get enough to the U.S. market because of how much they were exporting. But that's not a shortage. That is a company deciding who's buying more meat and where they're sending it and making clear decisions because that's what a company is supposed to do in capitalism. Right. Were they able to, uh, I mean, we all saw meat prices rise, um, you know, certainly not as much as they have uh, since, uh, you know, the inflation part of the equation has kicked in. Um, But meat prices were significantly raised during the pandemic. Um, because they claimed there was a shortage. So I wondered if you could address uh, some of the, you know, really the extraordinary profit margins. And then also we should remind listeners that the industry in every sector, pork, uh, beef, and poultry, have all been subjected to recent class action suits, investigations into price fixing, price gouging, and the like. So I wondered if you could kind of give us a little background on that. Absolutely. Yes, that's exactly what my book completely focuses on. So again, some of these, uh, these are a lot of these markets, especially where there are, you know, maybe one or two meat packers in a certain area where um, producers or farmers or growers are going to be trying to have their um, livestock or chicken purchased by a company for slaughter. Mm-hmm. No, they're, they're, these are uncompetitive markets. These companies often are one or two in a market. Um, and so particularly in beef, there have mm-hmm. been oh, yeah. major allegations of um, collusion and also just uh, more profiteering in beef since 2015. And so mm-hmm. again, this is far before the pandemic. And um, those price-fixing lawsuits you mentioned, there are hundreds of them. They're going to be playing out in the courts for years. There's been hundreds of millions of dollars already confirmed in settlements with at least six of the 19 meat packer uh, chicken companies who control the vast majority, 95% of all chicken in America. Right. Um, and so there are these major kind of landmark settlements. There was uh, even a Guilty plea from Pilgrim's Pride, the second largest poultry company in the country, which is owned majority backed by JBS. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, taking a step back, these <laughs> this profiteering was happening, um, particularly in the pandemic. So as the pandemic then hit, all these supply chain delays, fuel prices, inflation happening, starting to happen anyway, and prices started going up a lot. And so the commodity markets, which do set prices for, you know, uh, some of these uh, cash deals that are, you know, when a Tyson buys a, a piece, uh, a cow or cattle on the cash mm-hmm. market, um, they will have to use at, at least a starting point or at least a little bit um, that the, what the commodity markets are going for. And so those prices were going up, but at the same time, these meat packers have, contr- you know, consolidated their power mm-hmm. over the past three to five decades. And right. because of that, they were able to accumulate those profits more and retain a lot of those profits more. And, you know, over the past few decades, there's been um, a shift happening where producers make less, meat packers make more, and retailers also control more of that, you know, dollar spent on meat. But I want to go back to the report too here because, yes, please. you know, Tyson, for example, 
reported net income of in 2021 of $3 billion, 2020 of $2 billion. These are record numbers. JBS yeah. also reported a record, record profits um, really significantly and continues to do so. But again, in this report, <laughs> one of these emails just like made me laugh a lot. It made my eyes, and by laugh, I mean my eyes popped out of my head when I read this. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I love those art no. poppers. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll bring it up to us uh, to discuss, but I think it really kind of says everything, so I'll, I'll leave it at that. You know, the report says that meatpacking companies' profit margins in recent years have been so high that even industry lobbyists have recognized the possibility of poor optics. Uh-huh. Let's take that in for a second. So <laughs> right. one of these emails obtained by the select subcommittee discussed a p- pandemic-related proposal by the USDA to require and subsidize hazard pay for meatpacking workers through corporate tax breaks. I reported on hazard pay a lot actually in March of 2020 and in some of the earliest days of the pandemic. It was, um, you know, essentially workers working in a hazard in an emergency, in a emergency, like a dangerous situation. They They should be compensated for that. And so there was a major push in the beginning of the pandemic to get workers higher pay, especially from the unions. And so again, as, as this lobbyist was discussing the potential for hazard pay, a meatpacking lobbyist asked a Tyson lobbyist, quote, given where margins are, do we want to publicly support a tax break for meatpackers? <laughs> Excellent. No, we certainly the optics don't. are bad. They know it. That yeah. literally says it all. It really, it really does say it all. It is just shocking. I mean, the greed and the venality of this current era, uh, and really across every industry. I mean, obviously on this network and on my show, especially we focus on food, but really um, it's just, it is so widespread and the, you know, the the whole ethos of, I mean, I never thought I'd be saying I, you know, capitalism is bad, but capitalism is bad. I mean, this is bad. We have to find some other system. We can't treat people like this. We can't, they can't, you know, we can't, we've just lost our humanity so completely in this country. It's very upsetting. Um, but anyway, let's talk about something more concrete than what I think about the, the direction of our nation. Let's, let's talk uh, specifically about how many plant workers were sickened from COVID, because I think people probably don't have the final count on that. How many died? And let's go back to the community spread by recognizing how many ancillary cases uh, were spread from plants into the communities in which they uh, exist. Yeah, I think that's really important. And so I will also say that, you know, this pandemic continues and there continues to be outbreaks. Yeah, right. I know everybody's (laughs) acting like it's all over. I mean, I'm the only person I know who still wears a mask. I mean, Uh, I I wear a mask everywhere. You know, not mm-hmm. with my friends, but I go to the gym, I wear a mask. I go to the store, I wear a mask. I don't find that onerous. I mean, I don't get yeah. it. And yet, and people all over the country are still, even people who are super careful are still getting it. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's mm-hmm. like- I mean, I, mean, I yeah. know, honestly, I mean, so many people I know just got in the past month. Um, Same. It's, it's, a, it's really still happening and it's not going away. I mean, and again, it's not a health show, but I just wanted to keep that in, in the context here because, you know, the, the subcommittee, the same subcommittee that did this report was also, again, um, you know, investigating these numbers. And last year put out one of the kind of biggest and it was peer reviewed um, studies of of this. And that report found that 
in the first year of the pandemic. So just 2020, March to 21, March, um, over 59,000 workers from the top four meatpacking companies were infected and nearly wow. 300 died. Right. Wow. Yeah. 59,000 people. Oh yeah. my God. Yeah. I mean, so, meatpacking is one of the biggest um, in- industries, honestly, for, for workers in this country. Yeah. Um, and so I, but I think it really shows uh, that really just even speaks to how much impact these places of work could have had. And right. It's just and, these and, and thanks to these, you know, to the executive order, which was signed by Trump, uh, which essentially was written by the Tyson industry, you know, Tyson company saying that this is defense protection and you are now indemnified against any lawsuits for failing to provide uh, PPE or adequate barriers or adequate health care or any of the other raft of, of violations, OSHA violations that have been uh, made public over the course of the last year and a half. So, I mean, it, it is really uh, something incredible, which will uh, probably continue to some extent, but very much under the radar. So this report to me demonstrated how easy it is for an industry to dictate policy. Do you think, like, when you look at the Biden administration and the current iteration of the USDA uh, with Vilsack, um, are things getting better? Are they the same? What is your take on sort of how the new administration is handling an industry that's, you know, basically rogue, as far as I'm concerned? Um, uh, You know, are we getting a are we getting a grip on these on these people or or is it just business as usual? It's such an interesting question. And well, I think there's a lot more focus on what's been happening in the food system broadly, especially meat. And mm-hmm. I think the pandemic really just shone a light and there's a catalyzing moment for people to in average average and any people across the country to really think about how meat is produced and how it hurts workers, producers, the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this moment of the pandemic really showed that and it was a crystallizing moment for a lot of people. But at the same time, I think, you know, there's been several, um, you know, new proposals put out. There's been a lot of different bills. Maybe none of them will actually ever get ratified, but you know, there's been a lot of new subsidies and I don't have to go into a whole talk about subsidies. I know, but I don't know if necessarily just subsidizing small meat packers is, is, is the answer. I do think right. there has to be a help from getting the balance of power shifted a bit more. I think there's right. certain definitely ways to do that. Um, but I think, you know, with Vilsack, um, you know, I think this USDA is trying I will say Vilsack was the secretary under Obama and and when Biden was with Obama beforehand. And that was during key years of JBS's rise. Um, Vilsack is, was then left the, you know, became a lobbyist for several years for the industrial dairy industry. And um, I think has some significant ties to industrial agriculture. And, you know, while there are still a lot of appointments to be made, I do think there have been some good strides. I think the nutrition conference that's happening and hunger, I think there's been a hunger crisis in this country for years, if not decades. And I'm happy to see some of that formally starting to be addressed. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the first hunger conference is happening since like the Nixon administration. But again, right. at the same time, I think there's uh, still a fair amount of smoke and mirrors happening. And I also think 
while it's been great to see the Biden administration shine a light on some of the profiteering and like the economic impacts, it has politicized it in a way that I have not liked because it shouldn't be politicized. A lot of these concerns, especially a lot of these price fixing allegations and collusion allegations, the beef industry and elsewhere, you know, have been around for you know, a very, very long time. Yeah, decades. I mean, the industry yeah. has been consolidating basically since the Reagan exactly. industry era, right? So, so you know, there's, I guess the reason I was asking that is like, there's all, here we're seeing a, a an investigation into their conduct during the pandemic. We're seeing a lot of uh, noise about uh, antitrust and breaking up the monopolies, mm-hmm. but I'm not, I, you know, maybe I'm missing it, but I'm not seeing anything truly concrete coming out of all of this, chatter and no there's a lot of chatter and there's <laughs> nothing concrete yet absolutely you're correct. yeah i mean i find that very discouraging because i mean we're gonna we're coming into a point now where we're most likely going to lose the majority uh as democrats and um and that will be the end of any of these investigations or any of these efforts to break up monopolies um simply because republicans are you know i mean they're all so heavily subsidized by these industries that it's really, I don't think anybody is more or less. Well, yes, I do. (laughs) Some people are more corrupt than others. Aren't they, (laughs) Chloe? (laughs) Yes, that is what I will say. But I also will say that, you know, the meat industry, the meat lobby is one of the strongest lobbies in this country, if not the strongest. There is meat produced in every single state. And you can't say that about airplanes. You can't say that about oil and gas. And you can't say that about a lot of the other industries that, you know, uh, financial sources that, you know, uh, are funding a lot of these Congress, um, congressional campaigns anyway. Um, Meat really hits such a deep aspect of almost, you know, so so many aspects of the American economy that that's part of the problem there. It's going to be very hard to enact actually significant change, but it is so, so, so necessary. Absolutely. Well, with that, I suspect we should probably wrap this up. Um, Chloe, how can people learn more? Uh, And also, oh, I want to say, I hope you'll come back so we can talk about, there was another part of this hearing, which I didn't see in the report, but I know this is true for many people I've interviewed on this show over the course of the last 10 years or so, and that's intimidation. Mm. Uh, The intimidation factor, like especially among cattle ranchers who talk about the intimidation that they experience, um, you know, by packers and and I think that's true as well. Obviously, we've explored it many times on the show, certainly in the pork and poultry sectors where you have more of a, um, what do we call it, indentured servitude model. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but there's a lot of intimidation involved in all three sections of this industry. Um, and I, and that would be something I'd love to discuss with you at a future time. So, um, But how can people learn more about your work? You have a website and all that kind of good stuff. Well, thank you so much. Yes, I would love to discuss that. And yes, of course. <laughs> significantly in it, the hearing that was actually in, at the end of April, um, where one of the um, one of the cattle producers that was supposed to testify didn't because there was so much intimidation, and it was on the record wow. as part of the hearing that intimidation had someone who was scheduled to testify not testify anymore, which I think was extremely notable. Yeah. Um, but yes, yeah, so my name is Chloe Sorvino. I'm on, tw- on Twitter at C Sorvino. I'm on Instagram at Chloe Sorvino. I have a website, chloesorvino.com. My book, Raw Deal, Hidden Corruption, Corporate Greed, and the Fight for the Future of Meat is on presale. It'll be out December 6th. And I'm just really excited to bring it out into this world and continue writing about all these topics on Forbes. I've got a newsletter on Forbes called Forbes Fresh Take. Um, and, you know, just, just getting these topics out there as much as I can. 
Thank you very much for the work you're doing. Really appreciate it. And thanks so much for being on the show today. Love Thank to you. have you. Looking forward to our next round. <laughs> Thank you so much. Can't wait. Have a great time. Thank you, Chloe. Bye-bye for now. What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.